brings also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Amen. It is from verse 7 to the end of the verse of the psalm that we uh, look uh, to examine this evening with the Lord's gracious help. So it begins with, I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel, etc., to the end of the psalm. The last time when we looked at this golden psalm, uh, we looked at four points. We saw that it was speaking very much about faith. We saw the prayer of faith. We saw the evidence of true faith and the contrast of false faith when we saw something in verse 4 of the heathen and their false gods and their false worship. And then finally in point 4, the inheritance by faith in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. As we come to our first point this evening, uh, and these points are all referring to the, the golden truths and wisdom of God, we have God's golden wisdom in verse 7. And verse 7 says, I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. And this verse does still continue that theme of faith. I will bless the Lord. And so he's considering the theme of faith and what we read in the last part of verse 6. I have a goodly heritage. So again he's continuing, um, examining briefly now, the inheritance, the goodly inheritance of the saints. And, and we see that where he speaks of being firstly made wise unto salvation. Being made wise unto salvation. And so that's really referring to what this counsel is. It says, I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. There is a, a counsel, counsel, advice, information, um, wisdom that David speaks of. And it's clearly from the Lord because he says, I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. And it's something for which David is grateful and so grateful that he causes him to praise God. I will bless the Lord. So the origin of that counsel is divine and it has caused gratitude and praise within David's soul. So the question is, what is this counsel? What is this, uh, this, uh, this divine advice or divine information well, Calvin says that the counsel of which David makes mention is the inward illumination of the Holy Spirit by which we are prevented from rejecting the salvation to which he calls us, which we would otherwise certainly do considering the blindness of our flesh. 
Well, that's quite a de- an in-depth understanding of what this word counsel uh, means. And if we read the whole of the verse, we see, indeed, there is something about this counsel that is, that is different. But we'll move on to that when we get to it. But I will, uh, who hath given me counsel, my reins also instruct me in the night season. So anyway, just bear with me as we consider what, uh, what this counsel meaning and the inward illumination uh, the work of the Holy Ghost to enlighten the eyes of the soul. Um, and this in, inward illumination, we would say, is part of what we call effectual calling. The call of God that has an effect upon the soul of those that receive it. Of course, the, the word of God goes out to many. The outward call. But now we're talking about the inward call. The inward call that reaches the soul of man and is the work of the Holy Ghost. And so the inward call that has an effect, um, together with the conviction of sin, which is part of that work, and the renewal of the will. And so those three things together we call regeneration. That is the work of turning somebody who is dead in sin, and they are then rebirthed unto new life by the Holy Spirit. Because we were dead in trespasses and sins, and we were spiritually dead unto God, But the Holy Ghost comes and makes us spiritually alive unto God. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. He hath given me a call. He hath hath given me this inward illumination. Because that's what we're talking about when we have been thinking of faith and the work of faith. And it continues on really from I have a goodly heritage. And what is that inheritance that I've received from the Lord? Well, it is the fact that he has called me unto salvation, being made wise unto salvation. And now we see the increase of wisdom unto sanctification because that's how we can understand what he means when he says, my reins also instruct me in the night seasons. And this will help us to understand that this is an inward secret work of the Holy Ghost in the heart of David, in the heart of every true believers because he says it's this is happening at night and not just one night uh, but every night we can understand in this plural use in the night seasons i think literally it's in the nights in in uh, in the hebrew so my rains what are rains well for english people speakers that word that old english word has been replaced by kidneys we still use it as an adjective renal that which is of the kidneys so he's talking about the, the, the kidneys, the, the, the uh, two main organs of blood in the human body. And they both get attention in the Hebrew language and in the Hebrew scriptures. The heart, that, that which pumps the blood, and the kidneys, that which cleanses the blood. And they are used often together to speak of the inward man, uh, the, the inner life of the person, even, even in some ways the, the soul, the heart and reins we hear uh, uh, joined together quite often and the heart on its own and here we have the kidneys on its own and of course when he's speaking of his own kidneys he's using this word we may understand figuratively to point to something because the heart when we speak of the heart something is heartfelt we're speaking of the um, the heart of man we often consider that to be the very soul of somebody uh, or Maybe more broadly, the emotions and the desires of the heart. 
We even know that we can talk about the imaginations of the thoughts of the heart. And then when we get, when we get to the idea of imaginations and thought, then we understand that the Hebrew word for heart on its own, lave, that word is, or lave, also points to the mind. And it does. Heart and mind are linked in the one word for heart. But the kidneys are, are speaking of something else here, and they're certainly speaking of something less conscious than the conscious than the heart or the mind. Something private, even hidden from man, that Lord is doing something with me at night, even, even hidden from David, although David's revealing it to us. And again, calling upon Calvin's help, because it's not an easy verse. Uh, Calvin says that this calls these, um, these instructions, these night councils, he calls them secret inspirations. Secret inspirations, the continual work in the soul of the believer uh, by God. He saved them, he's brought them in, so he's had, they've had that saved, saving experience. They know something of the, the conviction of sin and the coming to the Lord in faith, being forgiven of their sins, having true saving faith, which is the prior six verses in, in, in most, in, with the exception of verse 4. But including verse 4 in the sense of rejecting that which is false and, and looking for that which is true in the true God and true salvation and true forgiveness. And so we have that conscious aspect of faith, but we see that the, the further working that happens of faith, which was a secret thing to begin with anyway, it was that draw of the Father to the Son. Again, that's a, that's a draw of God as he draws to the Son those whom he has determined to be saved. And then we have the Holy Spirit that comes in and makes that work, that word I should say, an effectual word to the sinner that they would believe. So we see something there then of, of the conscious faith and the, and the subconscious working of the Spirit. Uh, we could say, as I've proposed here with, with Calvin's help, we give Calvin the blame if I'm wrong, but trying to understand that uh, we, we have that... Uh, being made wise unto salvation in your conscious uh, person, but there is that continual work of the Holy Spirit subconsciously at work, uh, that continual work of sanctification, and we can understand that the faith has been wrought, it has been worked, it has been made in the heart by the Holy Ghost, and that faith must continue. So every time that the Word comes in, and as it were, very much like a normal life that we, we hear things, we see things, we experience things. And then what happens to all those experiences? Well, the brain and the whole body actually processes them that, that night. Uh, and sometimes we're aware of that in dreams. Um, and it's processed. And I suppose in a, in a similar way, it must be pointing to this here, that my reins also instruct me in the night seasons that... That part of my subconscious being, the Lord is using to change me. What can we understand about change in faith is, is sanctification. That continual work, the Spirit having lit the candle of faith, now kindles the flame to come brighter and brighter every single night, every single day. A continual work that the Lord has not just let us go. Admittedly, somewhat obscure verse. 
Well, we move on to a little bit more gospel light here in verse 8 as we've seen something of God's golden wisdom. And we move on to God's golden presence. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. The Lord before me then, what is this then to set the Lord always before us? Well, it's something conscious. We're coming back to a conscious life, a conscious determination. Uh, we know from the scriptures that the Lord uh, commands that we, uh, that we come unto, we humble ourselves before him, that we come to know him, uh, that we have fellowship with him, that we live as conscious of the fact that God is, is always there, uh, and to make our decisions accordingly. So an awful lot of those things I've just mentioned is what this, the Lord before me, uh, always before me means conscious of his constant presence which means what which means that it would limit our words or it would affect our words and actions if we're if we are not to live as the godless who ha who do not have God in their thoughts but we are to have God in our thoughts and being, being conscious of the fact that if I say something to somebody and actually it's gossip and then I realize, well, no, 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 but God's going to hear this. Uh, this is going to be sinning against God. My conscience is getting troubled. Let me say nothing. That, that's, a, that's a very practical understanding. Uh, I have set the Lord always before me. So it should limit our sinful words and our sinful actions. But knowing that the Lord is with us, the Lord is always before me. You can say, I am conscious that the Lord is always before me. That reminds me that I have him to communicate with, that I can call upon him at all time. I, I, I know he's always listening. I know he's always uh, available to take my call, as it were, to use a modern metaphor. The Lord is always before me. Proverbs 3 and verses 5 to 6 uh, say this, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. And especially verse 6, in all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. So we, we know that he's there, uh, being conscious of him uh, and therefore to control our own behavior, but conscious that he's there, that we, in all our ways, in every day and at every moment, to acknowledge him, acknowledge him as our God and as our helper. And we say, Lord, help me with this. Lord, give me wisdom in this. Hey, Lord, give me patience. Lord, give me all these things. This, and then we're making uh, larger plans or whatever that we would seek the Lord. Lord, I desire to do this. Is, is this good? Is this wise? Give wisdom, give help. Because the promise in Proverbs 3 and verse 6 is, and he shall direct thy paths. But also having the Lord before us is something that gives us a great comfort, of course, at all times. That he's always there. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He will not, uh, he will not flee from us. He will not leave us alone because the Lord is before me. But what we go on to read then in the second part of verse 8 is that the Lord is for me. 
the Lord is for me. He's not against me, he's, he's for me because David goes on to say, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. So we say the first part of that sentence is us being conscious of these things and then that gives us that, 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 that help as we've looked at in those, in those, in those three ways. But here, here we see that the Lord is, is for me is, is regardless of whether we're conscious of it or not. And we'll open that up very briefly now. Because you might initially think that this is one continuous sentence. I know that I've read that as one continuous sentence. But we've been helped by the translators here who, who place a colon in the middle of that, in the middle of that verse. So I have set the Lord always before me. That is uh, um, an independent sentence, shall we say. Although it's joined, it is linked with the second part. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. It is not a comma. It is not saying I have set the Lord always before me, comma, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Because if we were to make it one single sentence, we would make it say that David measured God's presence according to the experience he had of it. Which is not correct. Our feelings, our experiences do not determine or limit God in his work or in his presence in any way. But what we do have here are a number of truths in this second part of the verse. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. And so we understand that in the trials and the difficulties of life, as we've already mentioned, but it's also in this part of the verse, we can be assured, assured of God's presence to comfort us. But the meat of that part of the verse is, is that God is at our right hand to actually help and sustain us through all our difficulties of life. It's, it, although we would say, our Father which art in heaven, and yet the Lord is ever present and ever by us, he is high and lifted up, and yet he is so close. He's so close, and here we have the language that he is at my right hand. And again, that's figurative language, because the Lord is, is all around us, and, and by the rebirth, the Spirit is within us. So God is at our right hand, actually, to help us, because he is at my right hand. And let us continue that when we consider this, that it also speaks of the assurance of faith. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Faith has grown. Faith is growing. Faith is becoming stable. Faith is trusting Christ more and more and more. And faith must grow. There's that time when the disciples call upon the Lord, increase our faith. And indeed, that is something that we, we must uh, seek from the Lord. But how do we have that increase of faith, an increase of assurance of faith? Well, very simply, it is the reading and the believing of the Scriptures. It is the doing of the Scriptures. It's not just hearing them, it's doing them also. And you will do them because you believe the command. The Lord says, I'm to do this, and therefore I will do this, and I do do this. Coming under the means of grace, enjoying private worship, family worship, public worship, and letting the word come in and, and, and change you. And that changes you so that you not only just believe on the Lord Jesus because you 
don't want to die in your sins. You're not just believing on the Lord Jesus because you don't want God's wrath to fall upon you for those sins. It's not just believing on Jesus because you want a home in heaven. It's because you've learned to trust him. To trust him as your best friend and the only friend you'll ever really have. Although we have many friends and, and good family members, and, uh, but we can move away, they can move away, relationships can sour, they can maybe not help us in the way that the Lord can. They certainly can't help us in the way that the Lord can. And so we, there is no friend better than the Lord Jesus. And we've come to trust him more and more. We should, in truth, trust him absolutely from the very beginning. But that says a lot about the weakness of who we are, the strength of the flesh, and, and the work of the devil in the world. Of course, the world is full of, of unbelief or anti-belief, we could say. And the devil is at work to also do his part, part in that, and our flesh. The flesh with the emotions that it builds up, with the, the desires that suddenly appear out of nowhere. I mean, it's a constant fight. It's, 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 it's a battlefield every day for the Christian. And yet the more and more we're then taught by Jesus to trust him. Come on, trust me. Come on, let's walk this way. Oh no, it's a very narrow path. Trust me. Come, come this way. And then we learn, oh, I'm not going to fall down. I'm not going to trip up. I'm not going to slip off down that chasm. And I'm going to come to the Lord very similar to the way the Lord treated Peter when he walked on the water. They just, just come here, just look at me. And then Peter, instead of looking at Christ, he looks at the water and, and, and he panics and he loses that. He doesn't lose faith, but he loses trust in that moment. And, and, and so it is the same with us that we will learn more and more to trust Jesus more and more. And we'll look back at eternity and we'll be going, you know, how could I not have trusted him with my everything every single day? And so therefore we are to have that trust and that love and that belief, the obedience in him because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. So have a stable faith in Christ. But it also points to something else because it speaks of the saints' final perseverance. Because God who saved me, this God who will protect me and hears my cries, will ultimately bring me safely to himself at death. So ultimately, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. I shall not be moved out of his hand. I shall not be moved out of his book. I shall not be moved out of his heart. I shall not be moved out of the mansion that he has prepared for me. I shall not be moved, although mountains may split, although, although the chasm of the earth would open up beneath me, although I, I suffer shipwreck, although, although armies be against me, though there be a thousand on my left hand and ten thousand on my right hand, he will bring me safely to be with him at death. God's golden wisdom, God's golden presence, thirdly, God's golden gladness. I don't know where my watch is. God's golden uh, gladness. See that in verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth, my flesh also shall rest in hope. 
Now much of that is very clear to understand. And this song of praise, it comes forth from the very truth that we've just considered. That the Lord is at my right hand. Jehovah, the eternal triune God is at my right hand. And then David, and in some ways also as we were in the last point, coming to the, to coming to the glorious truth of what that means and what that is, and David can't hold back, therefore for this reason, my heart is glad. God's salvation going up to, and as we'll understand now in these coming verses, beyond the grave, perseverance, because he holds on to me. And so why does he say, therefore my heart is glad? Well, because of what we've understood in the previous verses, all of them. The last verse also, for we are saved for time and eternity. It's not just we're saved now. And Paul says, if, Paul the Apostle says, if it's just for now, then we are, the, we are a people to be most pitied and despised. He says, but it isn't. It isn't just for now. But it's for eternity. There's much more to the gospel. There's much more to the truth of the blessed evangel than merely now. It is for all time. Therefore my heart is glad. And therefore we see that he sings with his mouth. Because he says, and my glory rejoiceth. Now, the Hebrew writers use the word glory in quite a broad way. Glory, we've, have, we, have we studied that together before now? We may have done. The glory can reference your soul. It's used, I think by David, to refer to his own soul. But we're not going to get into that one. Here it refers to the tongue. I say, well, how, how do you get that one, Pastor? How do you find that? Well, David is poetically using the word glory for the organ that God has given to be glorified or praised with. So glory means tongue. That's how we understand what it means. But we let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so I'm now going to use uh, my friend, the Apostle Peter, because when he quotes this passage in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, in Acts 2 and verse 26, that's how he interprets or explains the use of that word. When he quotes, he says, Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. So in considering these things, his heart is glad. He's brought to a place of praising and that is a glorious place when we, when we take the time. I wouldn't say until we, when we have the time. We often have the time, but we don't always take the time to have that personal communion with God. And it's not always just uh, reading the scriptures and praying. It can include weeping. It can include rejoicing. It can in, in, include singing as we take the Lord's praise upon our lips. And so we see here then, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. And we see the final part of that verse, my flesh also, my flesh also shall rest in hope. So what does that mean, it shall rest in hope? Well, if you take it at a, an immediate meaning, is that we can rest because we have peace with God. We, we can rest in Christ, we can rest in our Lord and our Saviour, 
because he has done all the work and we are now saved. Our sins are forgiven us, our conscience is at peace, and we may rest, my flesh also shall rest in hope. So there is that truth that we can draw out of this, but that's not really what that part of the verse means. And we will link it with the following verse as we come to our fourth and penultimate point. Having seen God's golden wisdom, God's golden presence, God's golden gladness, and fourthly, God's golden mercy. Let us bring that part of the verse with verse 10. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So we see then, as, as we understand that verse, for the saint anyway, for the saved ones, uh, that we see that it would mean this, that the body will be not left forever in the grave. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. And that, that word that we see at the end of verse 9, uh, that, that for resting doesn't even mean something like we might use the word rest or to say it is, it is lying in peace or any of these other euphemisms that we'll use for somebody who's been buried. It actually is a word uh, which means to dwell confidently, to dwell securely, which is a very bizarre thing to say of a corpse. Without the gospel. But it shows, another, it shows a few things. As regards to the believer, there is something of a, of a dwelling securely or dwelling confidently of the body in, in the grave. It suggests something also that it is a temporary thing. My flesh, my flesh also shall rest in hope. That there is a change going to come for the believer. It's not a permanent resting of the body. It is a, a dwelling confidently in hope. In hope of what? In hope of, in spite of the physical death, that there will be that resurrection from the dead. That is what the, the heart of what we're reading there, that there will be a resurrection. Daniel 12 and verse 2 talks about the two different endpoints of those that die in the grave that there will be a resurrection for them all. Daniel 12 and verse 2, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So life and death. And it says many of them. It doesn't say, it doesn't say all of them, because we know uh, that there are, throughout uh, redemptive history, we have a few exceptions to that but essentially it means all of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. There shall be a resurrection. Resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto damnation. So here the promise of future resurrection is, is now emphasized. If we move from verse 9 to the beginning of verse 10. For thou will not leave my soul in hell. Again there's another word that's used in very different ways. Uh, by the Hebrew writers. It's from a word, Sheol, Sheol, which literally means grave, and figuratively is used for hell. So then we've got to understand what's the context, what's the difference? Well, it is a context-sensitive word. 
When we speak of eternal life and we, t- we speak of everlasting bliss for those who die in Christ, well, it means the grave. But when it's talking about those souls that are condemned and die in their sins and, and will go to hell, therefore we translate that word as, as hell. So for believers, we're understanding that death is not the end. It is the beginning. But why is it the beginning? Why is it that the believers can rest in the grave? How is it that they, although death is the final enemy, how is it that they can have peace with God and even peace with death? That's not given to everybody who is a believer at death. We know that from many um, death uh, experiences uh, that that the Puritans wrote up, that some believers have a very peaceful death and, and some believers have a difficult death. It doesn't say anything about uh, the, the end, their end uh, destination, heaven or hell necessarily. It's as different as each Christian is different. Christians have a different life, have different experiences, have different graces, and that includes at death as well. But for believers, death is not the end because Christ has destroyed the power of death. He's destroyed it. He conquered death and the grave. Paul. Paul, when he comes to the end of 1 Corinthians 15, a chapter where he talks about the resurrection, the necessity of the truth of the resurrection. Without without the resurrection, there is nothing. We have no hope. In fact, that's where that verse came from I mentioned a moment ago if memory serves me correctly. But 1 Corinthians 15, and then coming to verses 55 and 57, to the end of a, of a long chapter, he breaks forth into praise. He says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we understand that the only reason why we have a hope that our resurrection is a resurrection unto life and not unto condemnation, that we have a, that even though our body rests in the grave, that it is a secure dwelling in the grave with hope, with expectation, with confidence that Jesus will come and restore our bodies to our souls. Or well, why is that? Well, because Christ, as I mentioned, he went ahead of us uh, for his, his saved ones. But he is the Holy One that made it all possible. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. And so now we come uh, back to Peter. On the day of Pentecost. And referring to this specific verse as well. He looks at a few of these verses, but specifically this one. In Acts 2 and verse 30, he makes clear that David wasn't referring to himself. For, for a thousand years or so, the Jews no doubt thought, well, well, David is speaking about himself. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. 
Now, the first part of the verse we might say as Christians, well, that's David talking, and then secondly, that's about Jesus. Now, we might think so, but Peter and Paul would help us to understand that it's talking about Christ. Not that it would not be talking about David in the first part, but it is also talking about Christ. Acts 2 and verse 30, Peter helps us. Therefore, being a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins according to the flesh he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Remember 2 Samuel 7 and verse 25 or the whole of that chapter actually where the Lord where David had desired of the prophet I will build a house for the Lord and the prophet says do whatever's in your heart it's good. And then the Lord speaks to the prophet and the prophet comes back to David and says, you know, you wanted to build a house for the Lord, but hear what the Lord Jehovah says. I will build a house for thee. And the promise that he receives that, the, that, that, that he would never lack um, an offspring to sit upon his throne, that the throne of David would ever be fulfilled. So Acts 2.30, but I, I forgot to write down Acts 2. 31. So Acts 2 and verse 31, we see then this actual verse. So therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption and so we could continue reading uh, from his sermon but we won't but we will go to Paul Paul also spoke a sermon on his first missionary journey now Paul he sails and he sails to the the middle southern coast of Asia Minor and one of the the first places that he comes to on that journey is 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 another place called Antioch so it's not the Antioch in Syria it's the Antioch in a place called Pisidia, Pisidian Antioch. And so he preaches in the synagogue there, and he, and he points to there's a messia- messianic meaning uh, to this verse, or to this, this portion of the psalm. It doesn't just limit it to that verse, if you remember. And he says that there's a messianic meaning, and the fulfillment of this verse is Jesus Christ. So Acts 13 and verse 33 35 we'll read that God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children in that he raised up Jesus again as it is also written in the second psalm thou art my son this day have I begotten thee and as concerning that he raised him up from the dead now no more to return to corruption he said on this wise I will give you the sure mercies of David And in verse 35, wherefore he saith also in another psalm, thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That it's most definitely talking of the holy one, that is the holy one of Israel, which is Christ. So Christ did not see corruption. Christ's body did not rot because Christ had no sin of his own. We say, yes, but wasn't he truly dead? But what's the difference then between the dead body of a sinner and a dead body of Christ? Well, Christ had no sin. 
But what this also tells us is that when Christ went to the grave, every single sin of his people that he had borne on the cross had been paid for. He went sinlessly to the grave. He had no more of our sin. Every sin was burnt away upon Christ, our whole burnt offering. And so he went to the grave. He saw no corruption. Death and the corruption and the rotting process of death could not touch him. By his own will, he remained humanly dead for a time to complete and fulfill the humiliation that he undertook even to go into the grave, the end point of the sinner, to, to reach in to the depths of Adam and, and, the, and the corruptedness of his own sin that led to, led to Adam's death the death of the body as well as the death of the soul because a living body and soul was resurrected on the third day so there was no sin remaining to cause thine holy one to see corruption thank God thank God someone took away all of our sins and believer, we know that we still carry sins day by day. But we can come to the Lord and have that fresh cleansing. That we can repent. That we can call upon the Lord. We can seek that fresh cleansing. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because every sin was dealt with on the cross. Every sin. God's golden wisdom, God's golden presence, God's golden gladness, God's golden mercy. We finish very briefly with God's golden streets. Verse 11 is a glorious verse. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And so first these, we, we, we see something of the now. Uh, Thou wilt show me the path of life. He shows us the path of life. It's him. It is he. Jesus said, I am the way. So Jesus is the path of life that we may follow. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for his, for his own name's sake. So he shows us himself. He shows us the way that we should walk, which is at his side. He shows us the way that we should live as children of light. But he does, of course, point to, we can take the future tense, thou wilt show me the path of life, that there is a path of eternal life yet to be trodden. And we understand that in thy presence is fullness of joy. We have something of the joy now. We, we, we've already seen that, that, the, 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 um, that he will glory the Lord Therefore my heart is glad now, and my glory rejoiceth. My tongue is singing praise now, but now he talks in the future. In thy presence is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. Surely that's not speaking of now, although we may have times of refreshing, we may have times of personal revival, but in thy presence is fullness of joy. Yes, we can take it now, we do understand that there is a time when we will live forever and ever in the presence of God. And we, we see this. We see this in the Psalms. We, we've seen this recently in a Psalm as well. 
the high points that we have because of the hope. This is the hope that he was mentioning. That my flesh also shall rest in hope. And this is something of that hope. That we have the Lord with us. He's leading us on the path of life. And yet there is an everlasting path that we will walk with the Lord. And we will be in his presence forevermore. And he himself with his own finger will wipe away every tear. Take away every pain, every disappointment. It will all be gone. We may have a remembrance of it in our head. But it will be an intellectual remembrance. We won't feel it. Because every sadness is gone, there will be fullness of joy. Absolute joy. It's, it's, I'll be honest, I, I find that very difficult even to understand that fullness of joy in the Lord's presence. It's beyond me. It is beyond my experience. I have some joy, and then I can think about that joy. So, but this is, this is joy unspeakable. Joy unspeakable. And then it says, at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. At his right hand. That's so close we will be with the Savior for eternity. Pleasures, holy pleasures, good pleasures, God-given pleasures, God-glorifying pleasures. Oh, it's so difficult for us to understand what true holy pleasure is because of this rotten corpse that we carry around with us. But there are at his right hand the intimacy, the friendship, the fellowship that we will have personally, all of us. How does the Lord do this? How does the Lord on this new heaven and earth, how does he, how does he have that personal intimate contact with everybody? For, nothing, for the Lord, nothing shall be impossible and, and this is one. We will know him and we will fellowship with him and we will see him that loved us and gave himself for us and we will rejoice. We will not stop rejoicing. We will praise him forever and ever for he is worthy of this and I did want to finish when we're considering about the path of life and the joy that we will have and entering in uh, to that eternal uh, dwelling with God and Revelation 21 says something of it he talks in the streets of the city were pure gold if we're going to consider the the golden psalm of David here is the golden celestial city reached with its 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 Streets of gold of a gold that is so pure that it's described as being transparent glass or as transparent glass. I mean, that's just to emphasize the purity of it to us. And if it's transparent glass, what does that mean? It means we can see the foundations. And this is a city that is built with foundations. There's no city that's built with foundations. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that, is, that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. May God bless uh, this word to our soul and encourage us by these truths. Amen. Before we close in prayer, let us sing together the last part of this psalm.
So Psalm 16. And then singing from verses 5 to the end. 5 to 8. So verse 5 of Psalm 16. Before me still the Lord I set, since it is so that he doth ever stand at my right hand, I shall not move it be. Let us stand to sing verses 5 to 8 of Psalm 16, please. Let us close this portion of our meeting in prayer, please. O thou merciful, kind, and loving Jehovah God, thou who art the author of salvation, and thou who desirest to be with thy people, forever and ever, and hast done absolutely everything necessary to save them, to redeem them, and to bring them to be with thee for all time. Yea, Lord, thou shalt even roll up the heavens like a book scroll, like an old garment to bring heaven upon earth to have this new existence with us where no moon and sun will be needed because Christ is our light. The glory of Jesus will fill the earth and his goodness and his peace and his very presence will fill our souls and fill our bodies for we shall be saved to the uttermost, to the uttermost of living with Jesus, of getting to know him more and more, of rejoicing in him and rejoicing with him. He is the great leader of the worship of God. As we understand from Psalm 22, in the congregation, in the great congregation, he will praise the name of his Father and we will sing with him. O glorious truths. No doubt, O Lord, as we understand from the Scriptures, he will teach us. 
we will sit at his feet. We will look into his eyes and we will know him like we've never known him before. And it will be an everlasting knowledge, a knowledge that will change us. And we have been changed. We shall be changed. Oh God, help us to be conscious of these wonderful truths that we may walk knowing that thou art at our right hand and that, Lord, one day we will be forever in glory with thee. Oh God, hear us. Bless us in this time of prayer. Lord, we do pray that thou would help us to call upon thee and that thou would revive us in prayer. For we pray in Jesus' name and we pray for his everlasting glory. We pray for the extension of his kingdom. We pray, O Lord, for thee to send more workers, more laborers into his harvest. We pray, O Lord, that his name will be glorified upon the earth. We pray, O Lord, that the kingdom of Christ will fill the earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.